Well, let me pray for us as we continue, and, and um, we'll jump into this study. Father, I pray that, that our hearts have already been encouraged this morning as we have gathered in your name, as we have gathered as fellow sharers in Christ. We come not just as a people who have some sort of common religious faith or some common cultural interests or uh, even uh, friendship interests. We are people who are united by the life of Christ in the Spirit. And Father, as your people, we do long, I pray that we long, to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. And these things that are revealed to us in the scripture, these things that are the very fabric of Israel's story, these things that reveal the enduring, triumphal, effectual love of the eternal God, a love that will have its way, a love that will see the glory of the living God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. All things summed up in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, I pray that these things capture our hearts, that they give us a profound, a rich, a compelling vision. And all of these promises that were given and reinforced and worked out in the unfolding of Israel's life, there was a a shadowy quality to them. There was the inability to connect all the dots and to put all the pieces together, but all of those things that you had pledged that had your own return and triumph at the center of them, all of those things found their apex, their focal point in this thing that we call incarnation. So I pray for each one of us that you will enrich our understanding of this thing that we call the incarnation and that you will cause it not just to be something that will grow in our understanding, but that will have a transforming effect in our hearts and minds. May we be a people who are defined by, compelled by, and ultimately living out our lives in accordance with this truth of incarnation. So meet us in our need. Father, meet each one according to his faith and work in each one of us by your spirit, even as we know that it is his mission to perfect the life and likeness of Christ in each one. We yield ourselves to that work today, and we pray that you will cause it to be effectual in us. And all these things, as always, we offer up to you with the confidence, the assurance that is ours in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, last time as we considered this theme of incarnation, um, I tried to establish at the outset that the common way that we tend to view incarnation, and, and I used even examples from church history and in the various controversies and the councils, we've tended as the Christian church to view this thing of incarnation in terms of these abstract categories of deity and humanity and how to, how can they get stuck together in one entity, one being? 
can a person, can a human being actually be divine in what sense? Is that a different kind of humanness? Is it a compromised or a blended humanness? Is the humanness absorbed in the divine or is the divine something less than truly divine if it's to be attached to that which is human? And the church has tended to focus on those kinds of questions, but as I said, it moves it outside of really the biblical frame of reference. And that's what I want us to try to do is to develop a theology of incarnation as it fleshes itself out in the scriptures themselves. And so I've titled this, uh, carrying on this, this study of incarnation, The Return of the King. And I wasn't trying to pull from, um, from the Lord of the Rings, but that may be where your mind goes with that. But, but that really is at the heart. If we're going to say, what is this thing of incarnation all about? We can say it's about the return of the king. Yahweh returning to take up his throne, right? Yahweh becoming king. We read that in, in Isaiah. In Isaiah's language, the good news, the gospel is that the Lord has taken up his throne and established his reign in the earth. So we have to understand incarnation in biblical terms as the return of Yahweh to Zion with all that that encompasses and implies. In other words, that's a massive theme. Even in the things that we've read today, that's at the center of it, Yahweh's promise to return. But it brings into itself all sorts of other themes. It's not just about that narrow thing of God returning uh, to take up his place in his sanctuary again. It, it really is much bigger than that. So we have to have a widely all-encompassing biblical framework if we're going to understand how incarnation is about this thing of the, Yahweh's return to Zion. But if that's the case, and the scriptures show us that it is, incarnation is the substantial fulfillment, the fulfillment in substance of all of the great promises of God, the the hope and the longing of the people of Israel as that fleshes itself out in Israel's scriptures. And that shows us in turn that our common notions about incarnation have to be reworked. They may not be entirely incorrect, but they need to be reworked some. I think they need to be thought out more completely and refashioned. Commonly, and I want to start with this idea of atonement, and the reason for doing that is because, in my experience, if you ask Christians what really is the incarnation about, typically what they will do is jump to this issue of the cross. What incarnation is about is the cross. In other words, as I say here, we need to have a sinless, we start with the premise that people are sinful. God's intent in all of this is to deal with human sin uh, through a substitute. Well, in order to have a substitute, that substitute has to be suitable. So a substitute for human beings has to be a human being. But that human being has to be a unique human being in order to be a substitute. So he needs to be a sinless human being. And so what incarnation is all about is God supernaturally, miraculously causing Mary to become pregnant with an offspring who will be, be a sinless man. So that that one can do this thing that we call the work of atonement at Calvary. 
Uh, one man has said, you know, for many Christians, when, even when they look at the gospel accounts, for many Christians, uh, really all that they think it's about and what they're well content with is just the idea of a, um, an immaculate conception, a sinless birth, a sinless life, and death at Calvary, end of story. That's what the whole Christ event is about. And it's not that those things are not a part of it, but if we think of incarnation simply in terms of who is a suitable sacrifice or God providing a suitable sacrifice for this work of atonement, as we think of it at Calvary, then we're really doing injustice to incarnation. So obviously, incarnation does pertain to atonement for sin, but even as we've considered somewhat to this point, atonement in the scriptures isn't about legal satisfaction in the way that we typically think of it. If you say to someone, say to another Christian, well, yes, incarnation's about atonement for sin, or you even talk about this topic of atonement for sin, people almost always, or certainly the natural inclination, is to think of it in terms of legal satisfaction. In other words, God's intent, people think, is to exact payment for the debt and guilt associating with violating legal demands. Here's a requirement. Here's the penalty if you break the requirement. Somebody's got to pay the debt. Who's going to pay the debt? What the scripture shows is that God's intent wasn't to deal with legal infraction, but to see his human creatures conform to their created nature and purpose. So God's goal wasn't legal justice, the vindication of a, a legal standard or a set of legal commandments. Like if you break one of the statutes of the state of Colorado, there's a sanction attached to it, a fine, imprisonment, combination of both. For justice to be done, the penalty has to be paid. You broke the law. That's how we tend to think about, again, what Jesus came to do. But God's intent is a human race of faithful image children. Think about even the readings that we read today, what, where God says this is going and you didn't see anything in what we read that is emphasizing this idea of they broke commandments, they need to be punished. You see God's intent to put things right. So as we talked even last week, sin must be understood as deviation from the truth. God is who he is, and he created according to a definition of what each thing is and what it is for it to conform to its created nature and function. And when all things are ordered in a way that they are perfectly conformed to their nature and their function in themselves, in relation to everything around them, and ultimately in relation to God, then that's what we call shalom. That's what we call harmony. That's what we call peace. That's when all things are conformed to the truth and there is no sin. So in terms of human beings, deviation from the truth, sin, if you will, is deviation from who and what we are according to God's creative design and intent. Not who we think we are, not who we wish we were, not who society tells us, or our perception of the human race tells us, but who God created us to be. 
And again, God's intent was that humans should be one spirit with him, manifesting and administering his life, mind, and loving will in the earth as regal and priestly image children. That's what we've read this morning already, right? And we even have that indicated in Eden in the creation account at the very outset. This is what man is. Image child for the sake of being vice regent, filling the earth with the knowledge of God by being one spirit with him, manifesting his life, his mind, his will in the earth. So that ultimately seeing the children is seeing the father. I've said it many, many times. When Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's not talking about his deity and seeing some radiant, luminescent aura around him. He's saying that when you see me, a faithful son of Israel, servant, witness, and disciple, you're seeing the God of Israel. My point then is that sin for human beings exists when a person's life testifies of himself. When you see me, you see me. Notice it has nothing to do inherently with morality, immorality, bad behavior, good behavior. If you see me when you see me, then that's deviation from the truth. Because when I am truly human, when you see me, you see the Father whose image and likeness I bear. So atonement for sin then is about righting what is wrong dealing with falseness, dealing with deviation from truth. It is vindicating and establishing what is true through a process of exposing, condemning, and overcoming falseness. Put simply, atonement is concerned with the thing's conformity to the truth of its created nature and function, not its compliance with a legal standard. And that's the reason that Jesus' atoning work is cosmic in its scope. This truth escapes many Christians. Just the fact that we argue about limited atonement shows that we really don't understand the universal cosmic scope of the atonement. We are conditioned to think of atonement in terms of human beings And therefore, how many human beings get to go to heaven and how many don't get to go to heaven? How many are saved? How many are not saved? Who did Jesus die for? But the scriptures treat the atoning work, the cross work of Christ, as cosmic in its scope. Again, as I say here, I think that confounds conventional soteriological formulations. And by that, I mean, when you look at various ways of understanding the doctrine of salvation, I can say in my experience, almost never is anything about the created order brought into that consideration. It's just about who saved, how many, on what basis, their work, synergism, monergism. Is it all God? Is it partly you? What, is it election? Whatever. But it's all about human beings and what happens with them. And it's not that it's not about human beings, but it's about human beings as they sit at the center of a cosmic purpose. Hopefully we've seen that even as we move through the Old Testament, building the case for this work that God is intending to do. So, not only does the scripture teach this idea of a cosmic atonement, 
a creational atonement. But that idea makes no sense if we understand atonement in the conventional common way of legal satisfaction for violating a commandment. Why do I say that? Because the non-human creation hasn't broken any commandments, right? The earth hasn't broken any commandments. And yet you see in Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. The curse of alienation and death and calamity, thorns and thistles, the anti-Eden reality that defines this creation came upon the creation because of human beings. The creation didn't do anything wrong. So if, the, if this is about breaking a commandment that God gave, uh, the earth and the, the cosmos didn't break any commandments. But if atonement addresses sin, biblically defined as I've done, as deviation from the truth, then atonement must be universal in its effect as well as its intent. Why? For the very reason that I just stated. Human sin, in other words, man's deviation from the truth of himself, his nature, his function, by insisting on his own self-definition and self-direction, man as bearing witness of himself, when you see me, you see me, that human sin subjected the whole creation to deviation and falseness. Why? Because the creation's truthful existence, its proper existence, depends on the creator's image children fulfilling their created design. We saw at the very outset in Genesis that the created order is related to God in and through human beings. So when human beings deviate from the truth, they put the created order in a place of an alienated, broken, frustrated relationship with God because the creation's relationship with God is in and through human beings. That's why this is a cosmic atonement. In the very nature of the case, human atonement implies cosmic atonement, so that human renewal also entails creational renewal. And these citations that I've given you here from Isaiah um, and also even from Colossians, Paul says that by the blood of the cross, God has reconciled all things to himself, things in the heavens, things on the earth, making peace, all things, a cosmic creation-wide atonement. And, and in these Isaiah passages, Isaiah is the one who speaks of a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. And in talking about this root and stem of Jesse who comes, he talks about a creational renewal in which the frustrated, alienated, uh, internally opposing created order is, is set at peace. The lion lying down with the lamb, the child playing by the hole of the cobra, they will not hurt or kill in all my holy mountain, right? The earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas creational renewal, a paradigm, a pattern of creational interaction that we don't see. All we see is disharmony. 
enmity, confusion, frustration, disintegration. That's what we see in the created order. We see it within ourselves. We see it in our human-to-human relationships. We see it in our relationship with the planet. We see it in the creation's interactions with itself. We see it ultimately in all things relation to God. This is what Jesus came to put right. This is what atonement is all about. So yes, it's true that incarnation is the basis and it is the means of atonement. But the relationship between incarnation and atonement is significantly different than what many Christians and systems or structures of soteriology or views of salvation understand. Atonement is about remediation of sin, but sin properly defined. It's remediation that involves reconciliation unto the realization of shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace in the sense of absence of conflict. It means the harmonious, blessed flourishing of all things properly related to one another so that they encourage and edify and nourish one another. What you see in ecosystems that are functioning the way that they ought, where every species, plant and animal, is blessed and nurtured and supported uh, by all the others, right? That's what shalom is about, and that's what God's intent is. This intent in incarnation is evident in the very fact of it. Why do I say that? Because it's not just some abstract conjoining of a divine nature and a human nature, but it's the creator God taking up in himself the existence of his alienated image bearers. Remediation that is reconciliation and creating of the harmony that God intends with his creation that's centered in human beings. So in the language of the scripture, incarnation, as I said last time, involves the God of Israel returning to Zion to liberate his people from their captivity in exile. Not the exile like Egypt that was subjection to a national power, the power of the Egyptian pharaoh and his armies, but an exile that is captivity driven by bondage to sin. Sin as covenant violation, Israel's failure to conform to the truth of its election, its calling, its mandate. This captivity resulted from and it expressed their alienation from God due to covenant unfaithfulness. And so Yahweh was returning to Zion to set his people free from that captivity and restore them to himself for the sake of them fulfilling their covenant calling on behalf of the world. Think again of just even the passages we read this morning. So incarnation is the creator taking up human existence under the creational curse, not to vindicate legal justice, oh, you broke this commandment, but to vanquish the curse and heal and renew his creation by becoming one with it in and through man who sits between God and the creation As I said last time, if man is the source of the calamity, man has to be the source of the remedy by God's own design. This is how God is going to do what he's going to do. This is what incarnation is about. 
So we see that we can't understand incarnation simply as a first step in a process that leads us to the atonement of Calvary. But we have to understand incarnation itself as the very substance of atonement. We think of incarnation as the starting point, Jesus as a sinless man, so he can go and do this thing called atonement at Calvary. But if we define atonement in the way that we have, the incarnation itself is the very substance of atonement. It itself is the substance of atonement. Why? Because in incarnation, God achieved the comprehensive and everlasting intimacy between himself and man that was his primary goal in creating an image bearer. If we call incarnation the bringing together in intimate, perfect, harmonious union of the God of creation and man as man, then we have in that the very essence of what atonement was all about. Because it's about the bringing together of God and his creation, right? Centered in and through man. Well, that incarnational atonement, the, the incarnation itself spoke to and embodied the substance of this thing of, of atonement, what it was that God was actually doing. And that was worked out in Jesus' life through his own faithful sonship. In other words, Jesus lived his life as a man in continual and faultless contradiction of his own Adamic humanness. That's why I wanted to read Romans 8. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. We talked last time how important it is to understand that Jesus wasn't a different kind of man. He was born into Adamic, fallen humanness under the curse. Just the fact that he was mortal shows that he was under the curse, right? Because death is the last enemy that's conquered. Jesus bore our broken, fallen, and specifically Israel's fallen, covenant-violating, guilty, alienated flesh. And he lived his life in that flesh, constantly living in contradiction of it as a faithful son. He constantly lived as the faithful servant, son, witness, disciple in contradiction of the very Adamic humanness that he was born into. In perfect submission, perfect communion with his father. I have a food which you don't know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What feeds me, what nourishes me, what builds me up, what carries me, what drives me is to be one with my father. His mind is my mind. His will is my will. It's not he's in charge, I got to do what he says so that I won't have to go to hell like the rest of you. It's my delight, my food, my nourishment, the truth of my existence is to be one with my father. I'm living as a true son in the context of this broken Adamic existence. And that's what the Hebrews writer meant when he said that the man, Jesus, was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That aspect of temptation speaks to the fact that he bore our same broken, alienated human um, nature or human Adamic existence. But he contradicted it. He pushed back against it. He refused it at every step. 
Well, that atonement, that reconciling of God and man that began and had its substance in the incarnation itself, it reached its climax at Calvary. I'm not saying Calvary was irrelevant. I'm saying that Calvary wasn't where atonement was done. It was where atonement was finished. It had its substance in the incarnation. It was fleshed out in the daily living of Jesus as the faithful son. And it reached its climactic um, fruition at Calvary. How so? Because at Calvary, Jesus confronted and condemned Adamic humanness, fallen humanness, not as it existed in his own person. He had done that throughout his own life but as it exists in the human race as a whole. For on the cross, the full extent and power of Adamic contradiction, hostility, and opposition, falseness, in other words, human sin, directed itself against Jesus, which he embraced to himself in order to put it to death in his own death. This is what Paul means when he says, we hold it as a fundamental truth that when Christ died, all died. When one died, all died. When he, because he took this human contradiction, this human opposition, this human alienation, this human um, falseness that's directed against what it is to truly be human. It's a, it's a hostility towards God and the truth. He took that upon himself. He bore that as it was directed against him in order to take it to him into death and put it to death. When one died, all died. And he was raised to life so that those who live in him should no longer live unto themselves but lived to him who died and was raised again. This is what Paul says, right? So by taking up Adam's calamity and resolving it in himself, Jesus, the son of man, fulfilled his own calling to be the new Adam. This is why Paul says in Romans, what Torah, when he says the law, he's not talking about a catalog of commandments. He's talking about God's revealed truth to human beings, that which reveals to human beings and more narrowly to Israel as the instrument unto the human race. What, what Torah did was tell Israel what it meant to be son, servant, witness, disciple. It revealed to Israel what it is to be a true human being to be a son of God, right? But Paul's saying that instruction, that revelation, that disclosure, his prescription of sonship could not do. It could not bring about that which it defined and prescribed because it was weak through the flesh, through Adamic humanness. And what that instruction couldn't do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh underneath that instruction, right? Born of woman, born under the law. Jesus entered the world subject to that same definition of human sonship, and he fulfilled it. But he came into the world. The father sent the son in the likeness of Adamic flesh with respect to sin, specifically with respect to this thing of deviation from the truth, falseness. And in that way, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus, the Adamic flesh of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. So the incarnation then was both the substance 
and the effectual source of divine human reconciliation. You say, where was God and man reconciled in the incarnation? As it pertains to the particular individual, Jesus, right? That's where God and man are reconciled. But as it pertains to the whole world, that's what happened at Calvary, where this reconciliation now becomes a cosmic phenomenon and not just the one man, Jesus. And as the source of divine human reconciliation, it's also the source and substance of creator-creation reconciliation. So the incarnation was the very substance of the recovery and perfection of sacred space. Evident in the scripture's use of sanctuary language to depict it. What was sac what's sacred space all about? It's about how God is in relation to his creation, where his existence, his space, his life meets the creation. That's what sacred space is all about. That's what the sanctuary was about, right? The various manifestations of God's dwelling place. And that language is used of the incarnation, Think of John 1. I've mentioned before, John's gospel is particularly concerned with showing how Jesus, the incarnate one, the word made flesh, uh, the word become flesh, is the fulfillment of the dwelling place of God. And John shows that in various ways. So Yahweh had pledged to return to a restored and fitted sanctuary suitable sanctuary in order to dwell evermore with his faithful image children. This was his promise. The incarnation was both the fulfillment of that promise and the revelation of just what God meant by that promise. He promised he was going to return and take up his place in his sanctuary in the midst of his people. Incarnation shows us how he was going to do that. That wasn't really understood until it happened just how God was going to return and take up his dwelling in the midst of his people. So he was going to, what incarnation shows us is that he would return to his covenant people, not by inhabiting a, a physical sanctuary again in their midst, which is what Israel was expecting, Yahweh she Shekinah to return to the temple in Jerusalem, but rather by taking up their existence, their election, and their failing in himself. He would become Israel for the sake of Israel in order that Israel, the Abrahamic people, the Abrahamic seed, should become Israel in truth and fulfill its own calling uh, to bring its, his blessing to all people. Yahweh was going to enter his sanctuary in the midst of his people by making them his sanctuary. As I said last time, he determined in self-giving love to forever define his own existence by human existence. That's a profound thing to think about. God would forever define and bind his own existence in terms of human existence. And when he became Israel in truth in that way, then the incarnate Yahweh became man in truth. Man as image son manifesting the creator God in his creation. And so making man truly human in himself, Yahweh was ultimately then addressing the creation's alienation. Human violation brought creational alienation so that human reconciliation and renewal signaled the same outcome for the non-human creation. 
Thus the incarnation was the beginning and the sure pledge, not just of a renewed human race, but of a renewed heavens and earth. Romans 8. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. Second Peter. So Israel's prophets obliquely, meaning in kind of a shadowy, indirect, not perfectly clear way, uh, Israel's prophets obliquely connected Yahweh's dwelling place with this coming messianic figure, but the New Testament writers pick up that connection and they make it explicit and concrete. John shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream at Bethel. If you go back and you look at John 1, that imagery of the angels of God ascending and descending, it's like a ziggurat is what it is. You know, Yahweh standing at the top and Jacob sees the angels of God ascending. And, and Jesus says, what will you think when you see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man? And obviously, I hope obviously at this point, we see that the gospel writers show us, and John particularly, that Jesus fulfilled in himself Yahweh's promise to restore and return to his temple. He made that clear by his words. John 2, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. That became part of the accusation against him. We talked about the Samaritan woman, right? Where, should we, where do we worship? Where is the dwelling of God? Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, Jesus said, no, a day is coming and now is in spirit and in truth. And also when he talks about going to prepare a place for his people and I'll come and receive you to myself. Well, where is that? That's not going, he's going to make a place for us up in heaven. He's going to send his spirit so that they will be gathered up in him. The place he's preparing for them is within the life that he shares with his father. In that day, you'll know that I am in my father, my father's in me, and you are in me. We will make our place with you. But you see it also in Jesus' actions as he took to himself the priestly prerogative that belonged to the temple and its ministration. The main reason, and I cite Mark 2 here, when he says to the, the paralyzed man, um, uh, my son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees and the people around him are incensed that he would say that. What's their objection? Who is he to heal this guy? No. Who does he think he is to forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And how did God forgive sins? Through the priestly ministration that Torah had put in place in connection with the temple. These things were dealt with in the context of the place where God was, where he met with the offender, and that relationship was remediated through the priests. And Jesus is saying, I can take that prerogative to myself. So it's not so much just this claim to be God, it's that he is assuming to himself the whole role of the temple and the temple ministration as the place where God encounters people in their need. Right, put, he said Jesus represented a one-man counter-temple movement and, and Israel was incensed about it. And that reaches its climax when he rides in Jerusalem at the end and condemns the temple, right? This is going away because the reality of it is come in me. And you see it at the Feast of Tabernacles also, another example in John's gospel 
where at the height of the feast, the priest would pour out this drink offering. That was a part of the ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles. And at that time, Jesus stood up and he proclaims that all who believe in him would see living water flow out of their innermost being. He's drawing on that imagery, that symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles. So he's echoing Israel's prophets in that they spoke of life-giving water that would flow out of Yahweh's temple in the day when he returned to Zion to cleanse and renew his people and the creation and establish his kingdom. You see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Joel, you see it in Zechariah. Living waters coming out of the house of God, the place where God dwells to wash and to cleanse and to renew. But Jesus is taking up those ideas and he's locating them in himself, saying that the life-giving spirit would cause living water to spring up in the very core of the beings of his followers because they were going to drink of him, the fount of living water. So in effect, he's declaring himself to be the source of the river of the water of life and therefore the true sanctuary. And if he's the true sanctuary, then he is the fulfillment of the law of the central sanctuary. Remember again, God had told Israel, when you come into the land, I will assign the place where I will put my name. And that's where you're to meet with me. That's where you have to come. You can't meet with me wherever you feel like. You come to me where I am. And David believed Jerusalem was to be that place. That's why he wanted to localize. Well, first he brought the ark up to Jerusalem uh, and established a new tent there. But he wanted to build a permanent place because he believed that was the place where God was going to put his name everlastingly, the central sanctuary. And once that was established, all Israel had to come up to Jerusalem three times a year to meet with Yahweh there. If he's the true sanctuary, he is the place of divine human encounter. And that's getting us back to the Samaritan woman in John 4. It's no longer about a place. It's about a person who is the central sanctuary, the place of encounter, the only place of encounter. And again, when we understand that this is about the reconciling the 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 about human beings being taken up in the life of God now it's no longer about oh you Christians just say Jesus is the holy guy that needs to be followed we think Muhammad's the guy we think Zoroaster's the guy we think whoever's the god the guy that needs to be followed this is the avatar of our religion the figurehead of our religion. You Christians have your figurehead in Jesus. No, if he is the place of divine human encounter, um, then only in him can one actually come to know the living God. And ultimately, because knowing the living God is being taken up in his life. That means to become one with the Father in the Son by the Spirit. That's why he's the only way. When Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me, that's what he's getting at. I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven. Whoever eats me has life. If you don't, you have no life in you. So lastly, if incarnation then is the essence and beginning of God's recovery of sacred space, it is also the pinnacle revelation of his ultimate design for his new creation. 
let me put it this way. If someone were to say, okay, if this God exists, if he did create this world, if he, you know, is this creator, God, whatever, what's the goal of all this? What's the reason for it? What's the purpose for all of this? We would say incarnation is the purpose. Look to the incarnation and you will have that answer. God becoming one with his creation in and through man who is the image bearer and the mediator of the divine relationship with the created order. Incarnation reveals that design by embodying it. In Jesus himself, we see God's goal, God's purpose, God's ultimate end and the ultimate destiny of all things. The incarnation, which has its own destiny in resurrection, is the first fruits of God's new creation that would see all things summed up in the glorified son. That idea of summing up means attaining their ultimate significance, meaning, function, glory. That's what we see. That's what we see. So let me just close then. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about this thing of resurrection, He's answering the question. The Corinthians are saying, wait a minute, how does this thing of resurrection work? It's kind of like we do with incarnation. How do you stick deity and humanity together? They're saying, how can this thing of resurrection work? How can a dead corpse rise out of the ground? That doesn't make any sense. Tell us the mechanics of this. Tell us the bio biology of this. And Paul says, we, we can't even deal with those questions until we understand what it's really about. The truth of it and the purpose of it and the end of it. And I'll leave you to read most of it. But if we pick it up at verse 20, Paul has already said, let's just begin by establishing the fact of resurrection. If it doesn't exist, then we have nothing. There is no gospel. There is no hope. There is nothing. There's only death. If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins, right? Still deviated, still alienated, still broken. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep, those who have died, those who live in this place of death. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. All who, in other words, he's localizing life in Jesus himself, just as he localized death in Adam. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign, this resurrected, glorified, ascended, enthroned Messiah is reigning, and he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Well, there's an enemy that remains, it's death, mortality. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he has he is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection to him. The father isn't in subjection to him in that sense. But even death itself is not yet in subjection to him in that it's operating. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. That's a relational shalom idea.
God will be one with his creation in and through human beings. This is relational intimacy, right? This isn't God being, uh, you know, appeased because the wrongdoers have been punished. That, that's not his ultimate goal in all of this. So anyway, these are some theological things to think about, biblical, a biblical framework uh, for thinking about incarnation. And then next time we'll uh, flesh out maybe some of the practical implications. What does that mean for us in terms of this thing of salvation? What does it mean in terms of this thing called the gospel and preaching the gospel? What does it mean to live the Christian life? What does it mean to be faithful? Where is this ultimately going? Where does our hope lie? What is it that we're longing for? What is it that we're waiting for? So I want to address some of those things then next time. But well, let me uh, close us in prayer, and then we'll close with this last song. Um, and again, hopefully these lyrics, I know it's a familiar hymn, but hopefully when we read these lyrics and think about them in the light of what we've been talking about, they'll take on a little bit richer meaning for us. So let's pray. Father, I know I say this often, probably virtually every week, uh, that there's a lot to chew on here. But these really, uh, without meaning to uh, seem facetious or condescending in any way, these really are the things that are Christianity 101. These are the very basic things of the faith, the very basic things of the truth as it is in Christ our Lord. And they, they just seem strange and foreign and difficult to us because we're so far removed from the biblical text and the biblical story. We've been taught to think in formulations and systems and, and uh, bodies of doctrine that are in a certain sense put together and ordered outside of the biblical story itself. But the gospel writers want us to see the incarnation as the apex of the salvation history and they, in that they all put the incarnation at the very outset of their gospel account. But each one of them interprets that event as the way in which the God of Israel was fulfilling his pledge to again return to his people, to take up his habitation in their midst, to liberate them, to deliver them from the bondage of their alienation, their sin, their covenant violation, and restore them to himself. And I pray, Father, that we will grow in our ability to understand this thin thing of incarnation in that way. Because really, this is the way in which all of the things with which we have to do will come into sharp focus. Whether we think of our own faith, the nature of salvation, the gospel, whatever it may be, uh, incarnation is absolutely vital to understanding you, the Messiah, the purposes that you have, what you have accomplished, and where this is all going. So I pray for each one here. Give us understanding hearts and minds give us uh, a longing a zeal to be people of the scriptures people who bathe ourselves in the truths that you have been pleased to record for us in such a glorious multifaceted intricate way in this thing that we call the salvation history with israel at the center may we become a truly biblical people in our understanding i pray for each one here that you would help them
that we would minister to one another in this way, that we would truly be committed to helping each one to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, not, not as a platitude, but as a reality, that we would truly desire and labor to see Christ fully formed in each one. So help us in these things, meet us in our weakness, forgive us for our laziness, forgive us for our carelessness, our lack of concern. Make us a zealous people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.